Hello? Hi, how are you? Is that Chris? Yep. Hi there, how are you? My name's Leonard Sultana from Englishman in San Diego. Pleasure to talk to you, sir. Oh, Pleasure is mine, thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. I watched the documentary today, and fantastic uh, documentary. Really gets into the nuts and bolts of the, the whole background of your time on X-Men. What I really loved about the documentary was it could also sit alongside the Women Make Comics documentary from a few years back, uh, showcasing uh, those incredible women who have been always been at the forefront of comics. Um, could you describe what mm -hmm. it's like to work with those women, and what would you say to those saying today that there's a feminist agenda being forced in comics today? I'd, I'd have to ask what the definition of feminist agenda might be. I mean, the, the thing about working with Louise Simonson and Anna Senti, among other people, is that they were smarter, more talented, more articulate, more sensible, certainly. Well, in Louise's case, in any meeting of editorial or creative, she was a grown-up in the room. I like how you say sensible. In the documentary, it said that it, it feels like nobody was sensible in the office. It, it sounded like it sounded like so much fun. Well, we're, these are comic books. We we create worlds. We have people running around. I mean, Spider-Man runs around in skin-tight spandex in the middle of a flipping winter. I mean, it, it, yeah. There was there was never enough stories of him freezing, was there? <laughs> well, I mean, the only the only thing more absurd than Captain Britain's uniform was when Betsy put it on instead. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god. What have we done? On the other hand, when Alan Davis is drawing it, who gives a damn? <laughs> yeah, it just looks brilliant. I mean, on, one, on the articulate, world-class level, you look at them and say, these are adolescent fantasies running around with perfect bodies and in skin-tight spandex, sneer, sneer, sneer. On the other hand, uh, it's no more or less absurd than telling stories about 300 idiots standing at, at the gates of... Thermopylae in front of the hordes of Persia, or once more under the breach, dear friends, once more we'll pile up the bodies with our English dead. You know, it's, it's with storytelling, and these are the tales around the campfire of the modern age. And yes, they're over the top, but so is Beowulf. The trick is when you're telling a story to get smiles or tears out of out of your audience at the appointed places. And ideally hope that the next time you open your mouth, they'll come back to listen more, for more. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine as well with um, Louise in the room and all of the, the, the women that were involved, uh, that there was this different op uh, opinion world of world views. Um, what, what do you feel that they brought to your writing? Uh, was there like a, a tempering or did, did, did they push the more outlandish? I don't know. What was, what was your take on it? I think they're... they're they did what every writer prays every editor or agent, if they're worth a, worth a 15%, will do, which is be the second set of eyes that looks at your work and ask, asks the, the primal question. Who are the characters? Why are they doing what they're doing? What, what choices are they making and why are they making them? It's not a gender-specific requirement. It's a different perspective. It's a different approach. It's a different background of knowledge. The trick one needs from an editor is the ability to say, are you sure of what you've just said, <laughs> of what you, you have your story doing? Are you sure that... that that's, the, that, that that's the best approach. Is this the best approach? Weezy's way of, of doing it was simply to say, what about this character? Oh, 
I could do this. Okay. And then I could do that. Yeah. And then when an editor, when a, a second view like this is done right, they have a way of catalyzing one's inspiration and gently focusing it in the most sensible way possible and yet doing so in such a way that the, that the writer involved egotistical son of a bitch that he is, <laughs> thinks it's his own idea, and can sit back and go, wow, I am so brilliant. And the editor will nod quietly, Louise will nod <laughs> quietly, and say, yes, you are brilliant. That way, everybody wins. The editor produces a book, the writer produces a book, everybody's happy. With, with X-Men uh, being on those books for 17 years and the rest, uh, the documentary shows that you did keep creating story threads that you didn't necessarily intend to complete there and then, but you did find yourself returning to uh, e even years later. Were they a conscious effort to allow you the ability to return to them, or did you see that other writers could pick up the baton once perhaps you'd left them? No, I, I, I had no intent. I had no desire to leave. I figured I'd be around for 20 years, maybe 25. I'd keep going until it got boring. It's like, I hate this thing. <laughs> well, no, I, you know... I, Growing up and reading down there, I, you know, every every time I thought it would get boring, it, it something new would pop up. Uh, Anastasia would change. The Mekong would turn into something. Quick, family. They get a whole new Doctor Who. <laughs> that's that's actually something that that came up when I was watching it. Doctor Who did get mentioned. Well, I'd, I'd only been watching it for seventy years, <laughs> fifty-four years. You know, seventeen Doctors, thirteen Doctors. However, the hell many. They finally got around to making one for them, so we'll see how that turns out. Looking forward to it. Towards the end, it did seem that there was a, an element of bitterness about how you left the books, with the new talent being prioritised over you and your feelings for the books and the characters. But the documentary kind of shows you being very pragmatic about the situation. Uh, was there any bad, well, blood, any bad blood that lingered beyond you leaving the book? Well, I mean, the documentary has the advantage of being 20 years later. <laughs> if, if, that, if we'd filmed that documentary in 1992, I suspect my attitude would have been totally different. But the fact is that, that shite happens, whether you like it or not. And uh, in this instance, these are, are Marvel properties, and, and the company has, since it's, it's signing the paycheck, issuing the paycheck, has the right to make, reserves the right to make its own decisions regarding the future of its, of its title, and to an extent its talent. But None of that really is a surprise. I suppose my mistake was assuming that my tenure and my demonstrative success insulated me to an extent from that kind of concern. Yeah. But the flip side of the coin, which I freely acknowledge, is from Marvel's perspective, the longer I stayed where I was and did what I was and the more successful it became, the more the fear grew in, from a corporate standpoint that it would be viewed as Chris Claremont's X-Men and not Marvel's X-Men, that it would always be tainted by the fact that it was, it was totally identified with one person above all others. Do you find it ironic that that's how it's actually ended up? Well, I think it's the same challenge. It was always Stan Lee presents Marvel Comics for 50 years until uh, the current ownership decided that was not no longer the case, and they took Stan off of his name off the books in that regard. You know, it's, when you're in a different, when the rules change, the realities change, the creator's attitudes 
and realities have to evolve with it, like it or not. One might wish for a world in which someone else wins an election or not. You go, you deal with the government one has, whether it's Teresa or Donald. I mean, was there any bad blood that lingered beyond you leaving the book? And does any of that ill will kind of linger to this day from either side? Do you feel? No, I'm, I'm under contract model, isn't it? It's, you know, Bob Harris basically cut me loose in 1991 and rehired me in 1998 for a management position. You know, we all and then Joe fired me two years later. <laughs> no, comics like film, like publishing, it's a matter of evolution. Everybody, to a certain extent, is fungible. And with the, in the right circumstances, with the right editor, the right artist, magic can happen twice or three times. It's a little, little bit of history repeating. Well, not really. I mean, the thing is that, okay, I, I, was, I was rebooting the X-Men, then I got fired. But then a year later, I had the opportunity with Extreme X-Men to work with Salvador Oroca. And it was wonderful. We had two brilliant years. And then Salva got pirated. And I found myself with Igor Corday, which was even more fun in a lot of respects. And then that didn't work. Then I ended up working with Alan Davis again. At which point, I got, ended up working with Chris Patello. In each instance, I found myself able to come up with stories that I was exceptionally proud of. And which I think... That, that was a question I was going to ask, actually. Because everyone talks about the classic epic X-Men storylines, the days of future past, the Dark Phoenix sagas of the world. And the documentary does a grand job of retelling the conception and execution of those stories. Were there any of the less well-known stories or character arcs that you feel don't get talked about enough, that don't get enough recognition? No, because sooner or later they will. You know, I think. Uh, and to be honest, I don't really, this sounds radical, but this is all past for me. I don't really care about what I could have done, would have done, should have done. The, when, we, when I started with X-Men Forever, um, the idea was, well, Chris, if you hadn't left the first time, what would you have done next? Well, I would have done a lot of things, but the most interesting element grew out of the fact that was a suggestion who said, why don't we kill off Wolverine? Well, we can't kill off Wolverine. Why not? Well, it's Wolverine. He's in like 15 books, not in your reality. In your reality, you can do what you want. And I thought, shit. Okay. I killed Phoenix. I might as well kill Wolverine. Sounds like a challenge. So first thing, no, the first thing we did was, A, we killed Wolverine, which I thought was wonderful because it gave everybody else a chance to do something cool. But in the same story, I did something which I was in the back of my head for years. I merged... Wolverine and Kitty together, and she comes out with a claw, an adamantium claw and attitude. She suddenly is not a cat, she's a baby tiger. And things were going to go for her downhill from there, because I had stuff in mind for Kitty that was, would have probably gotten me a lynch if, we'd ever, if, if the book hadn't been canceled and we hadn't done it. But for me, it would have been a whole lot of fun. It would have allowed me to poke fingers at at presumptions, it would have allowed me to play with realities and maybe get inside people's heads from a direction that they hadn't anticipated with, with consequences that I'm sure would have driven people crazy, but maybe would have made them want to see what happens next. 
But I, I just I was about to say just one last question. It kind of bounces off what you were saying, which is that fans at conventions are notorious for letting you know to your face what they have loved and what more often than not what they've disapproved of. Are there any interactions that stand out at conventions in your mind as being particularly noteworthy? Well, I think the the primal one is that I remember to this day is a young woman in tears, absolutely in tears. She was in her twenties. She was young. She loved the X Men. She loved the women characters in the X Men. This was her favorite book. But she was Mormon, Church of Latter-day Saints. And her husband was willing to indulge her love for comic books so long as the children were too young to read them. But now the children were old enough to read, and he felt that comics were an inappropriate influence <laughs> on their young minds. And so he was, he, had, he told her that she couldn't read comics anymore. And her heart was broken. And I, I, listening to her, sobbing. And I'm thinking to myself, the inside of me is going, holy shit, I've got one. <laughs> this is beautiful. Because it means I've, everything I've done, I'm doing right, and it, it's having an impact. And yet the yang of me is going, oh my god, what have I done? Oh my god, I have broken her heart. Well, at least she, she, at least she managed to get to the conventions one last time. Well, no, but the, but the corollary to that is if I, for whatever reason, can create stories and characters and conflicts and resolutions that have that kind of impact, that have a woman in tears because she has to give the book up, then that imposes on me an absolute responsibility to make the work worthy of that audience, that everything that I try to do in the X-Men, or anywhere for that matter, has to be on a level that if someone's going to burst into tears because they're going to lose it, I have to make it worth the loss. Yeah. And worth those tears, and and you know that that is one hell of a responsibility, and I, I hope I never get bored with it. Chris, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you for calling. And and con and congratulations on the documentary. It's a fantastic piece of work. I can't wait to see what happens next. <laughs>